virtually every single member of the C-suite in an S&P 500 company have some component of their discretionary bonus on an annual basis, which is by far the largest component of their take-home compensation that's tied to stock price. So you get the attention of more CEOs if you get more people to mess with their stock price than you do to even boycott them on their products. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Abigail Wiest, co-founder and CEO of Goods Unite Us, a website and mobile app that allows users to see a brand's politics and be more informed about corporate money and politics. Abigail is also Assistant Attorney General in Wisconsin. And Jason Britton, Chief Executive Officer of Reflection Asset Management and Reflection Analytics. Jason uses Abigail's data to produce an investment vehicle that only includes companies with Democratic partisan scores. Mr. Britton is a senior financial services executive and adjunct college professor with deep experience in values-based and ESG-related investing. I enjoyed learning what Abigail and Jason are up to. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jason Britton and Abigail Wiest. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Abigail, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? And then Jason, can you do that after I'm done with Abigail? My name is Abigail Wiest, and I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of Goods Unite Us. I work as a public attorney in the state of Wisconsin. I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and I went to law school out east, and I've always been very politically active. I've always cared very much about our voting process and the integrity of our democracy. Uh, and that's kind of one of the reasons that we founded Goods Unite Us. Let me ask you a little bit more about that career, because I always like to know more about the background of people who are starting new things. I gather that you went to college at St. Olaf. I did. Is that right? Yeah. What, what did you study there? I studied political science there with a minor in art, um, just because I enjoy art as well. But my focus was political science and specifically environmental law initially. So that's kind of what led me to Vermont Law School then after St. Olaf, uh, because I was initially interested in environmental law. And then soon that kind of developed more into constitutional law issues. I used to know the dean of Vermont Law, Chase. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was he there when you were there? He wasn't, but we have buildings named after him. He was a good friend of mine's father. Oh, that's great. My husband, Brian Potts, who is a co-founder of Goods Unite as well, we met in law school in Vermont. What, what is Vermont Law School like? It's a really interesting law school. It's not affiliated with the University of Vermont. And so it's a, just a private, independent, private law school. It's a small law school, but it's it's consistently been one of the best and 
uh, environmental law schools in the nation. So that's kind of what attracted both Brian and me. It's funny, when I first went to visit it, uh, I was you know, right out of college and I rented a car by myself and I drove there and it was so small, I cried because I was like, oh my gosh, there's no one here except for one guy in a tie-dyed shirt with a dog. And it was in the middle of the summer, so it was you know pretty dead. But uh, it ended up being three of the best years of my life. It's a wonderful environment. It attracts really interesting people. It's small, it's intimate, it's not nearly as competitive in terms of within um, the student body. So people are real collaborative and you just make lifelong relationships. We have friends all over DC where you are. A good friend of mine in my class was the, um, the chief of staff at CEQ, the White House Council on Environmental Quality for a while. And uh, yeah, so we have some really interesting alumni all over. Right now you're an assistant attorney general in Wisconsin, is that right? That's true. I am. Yeah. And I work that part time because I love the law aspect of it. I love oral argument and appellate practice. Can you sort of trace your path from law school to that position? I so I initially I thought I went wanted to go into environmental law during law school. I clerked at the White House Council on Environmental Quality in DC and then I also clerked at the US EPA. But I soon realized that I was kind of more interested in, in, in the, the larger, less statutory and regulatory-based law, more constitutional issues. So when I graduated, I took a job as a Supreme Court clerk for the Supreme Court of Kentucky, uh, where my husband is from. And I worked there until my justice was uh, defeated in her election. So at that point, we decided to leave Kentucky and uh, Brian went to Berkeley for an LLM, which is a legal master's. And and then I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I thought I wanted to go into environmental law still. So I ended up back in Wisconsin um, working for a private firm in environmental law and then soon realized that that's just not where my passions. I mean, my passions about the environment um, are much broader than and I didn't enjoy the law side of it as much. And I ended up then getting a job at, at the Wisconsin Department of Justice and really loving that, really loving constitutional issues and appellate work. So work that is doing a lot more of the, the ideas and the law and less of the facts. Um, and so that's what I'm doing now, and I'm doing that half-time, and I'm balancing that with Goods Unitas. Well, Jason, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Britton. I'm the Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer for Reflection Asset Management. Uh, Reflection Asset Management is an SEC-registered investment advisor and is the investment advisor of record for DEMS, D-E-M-Z, the Democratic Political Contribution Index. Uh, my undergraduate degree is from Georgetown University, from the McDonough School of Business. From there, I bounced around two or three different departments of major Wall Street banks. I worked at Keith Broyette & Woods in Hartford, Connecticut as a publishing research analyst. Um, that's sort of where I fell in love with what we call ESG, SRI, or values-based investing. That was sort of my first foray into it as a coverage analyst. I then parlayed that into my graduate work at the Yale School of Management in New Haven, Connecticut. And then from there, went directly to work for Lehman Brothers. I ran as managing director of their community investing group. Got sold accidentally to the British when the Lehman bankruptcy happened. And that's a wonderful story. That's an entirely different podcast. Um, but on September 15th, 2008, ended up carrying now a Barclays card and working for what was at the time um, the iShares group when it was still owned by Barclays. Uh, and then, as I like to sort of confess, made one of the largest blunders of my career, uh, chose to move out of Barclays because some firm I'd never heard of called BlackRock, this up-and-coming asset management firm, was going to buy iShares from Barclays when they decided to divest of their U.S. assets. And since I'd never heard of them, they couldn't possibly be a firm that I wanted to be affiliated with. 
So I moved on to Merrill Lynch, uh, U.S. Trust. And uh, now Barclays is the largest asset manager in the world by a factor of two or three. And uh, the group that I worked for no longer exists. Post that, uh, my career was at U.S. Trust and at Merrill Lynch running, again, all thematic equities. So focusing on helping institutions, endowments, foundations, high net worth families and family offices create investment products, specifically equities, around aligning their traditional investment goals. So return and risk, et cetera with some overarching social purpose. And whether that was divesting from fossil fuels or aligning with values of faith and principle, or in the case of Dems here, being thoughtful around political philosophy, uh, that's just been my entire career. I retired from that in 2016 down to Charleston, South Carolina, uh, with my wife and four-year-old son and two golden doodles. And uh, so we live at the beach, which is wonderful. And uh, I did so so that I could teach. I'm actually a college professor. I teach at the College of Charleston uh, in the business school in entrepreneurship and finance, where I mold young minds and impact investing, and then was approached by a member of the goods board and sort of circle a couple of months ago and uh, asked to build them a product uh, similar along the lines of all the experience that I had. And that's where we find ourselves today. So Dems launched on election day, and it's been a great ride ever since. What was it about values-based investing that hooked you or you found more interesting than other investing? So that's a great question because I think the answer is going to surprise you. Most people come to it similarly to how Abigail talks about coming to the environmental side of the law because of a passion uh, around environmentalism, green, you know, conservation, etc. When I was a publishing equity analyst at Keith Broyette and Woods, and I'll give you 30 seconds about what that looks like, for 363 days a year, right, you pretty much know exactly what's going on. You're building your models, you're talking to company management, you're watching for economic forecasts, and you're just trying to put a buy, sell, or hold target on a company. Well, a couple of days every year, when the companies that you follow release earnings, all hell breaks loose. And in either there are a pre-bell release or a post-bell release, and you have approximately seven minutes to read 100 pages of financial disclosure, update your model, and get on what's called the hoot, which dates me a little bit, but essentially an internal morning conference call the day of and try to convince people why your view on that company is right or wrong. Now, in my world, I was covering insurance companies. And again, with all due respect to the insurance industry, it is one of the most regulated businesses on the face of the earth because each state has their own rules. So it's the intellectual equivalent of if you had a savings account in Iowa, the rules would be different on what it could be called, what you could charge, how it all worked, you know, in Kansas. So the state's attorneys general and state's insurance commissioners have all these rules and regulations. So it's super regulated. So there's not a ton of pricing power or product innovation because it's a real pain to get through all 50 states to get that approved. And scale is really the only way to make a lot of money in that business. So if you're looking at the same information as everyone else, you work in an industry that has no innovation and no pricing power, it can be kind of boring to cover. So what I started to notice purely from a financial return perspective was that some companies were really good at managing their internal staffs or what I referred to as their human capital. They had lower turnover, higher institutional memory. They had lower expenses. They just in general were more efficient and better run companies. So I started doing a little digging. That led me to look at things like expenses and risk management on the environmental side. So my approach to ESG and thinking about 
companies who are paying living wages and promoting from within, who have excellent benefits, who are thoughtful around gender and social justice and diversity and inclusion. Now, this goes all the way back to 2000, by the way. So we're not talking about the last 18 months. We're talking about you know literally more than almost 20 years ago. It occurred to me that it was just smart business. So I started to write and publish on what it meant to be thoughtful around these areas, not knowing that it was ESG just that it was good business. And that's what led me, because there was no formal training in it, there was no SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, didn't exist. Um, Global Reporting Initiative, all of the things you hear about the UN SDGs, these things weren't even on cocktail napkins yet. So in 2000 and then leading up to 2003, and then finally graduating in 2006, I went back to Yale to study it because frankly, and purely honestly, they let me. Right? They let me craft my own program my second year of independent studies across the campus. So I did have Abigail will be proud. I did have some classes at the law school. I did have some classes at the school of what was then forestry and now is environmental management uh, and really tried to formalize what a, what a career and a field in ESG or you know, values-based or thematic management could look like. That makes a lot of sense. How was the Yale SOM as a place to study? You know, it was exceptional uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, one, to be perfectly honest with you, that that brand goes a long way across the globe from international recognition, especially as it relates to their overarching principle, which is educating business leaders for society. So it's not just, you know, the, the traditional maximized profit at the expense of whatever's necessary. It's more of a holistic, how do companies fit into the, the theory of shared value? And that really resonated with me, especially in the field of study. So you talk about the quality of education, the name brand, their willingness to put professors uh, across the university. And that's another unique feature of the School of Management is that it really is part of the Yale University system. So if you want to take a class by a Nobel Prize, for example, Bob Schiller, who teaches in the economics department, you can. If you want to study under you know, someone at the, at the drama school for an elective, you can. You're not just kind of locked in and it's a special place for that. That's cool. Abigail, can you tell me the founding story for Goods Unite Us? Sure. It was uh, the last presidential election, not not the most recent, just about four years ago now. After the election, Donald Trump won the election. We woke up the next morning like many people, very surprised and feeling like, what are we going to do about this and not wanting to feel helpless? Brian and I were both just kind of talking about how are we going to protect as Democrats, and I and then I'll I'll point out that Good United, as Brian and I are both, um, I am particularly progressive. Good United now has pivoted, and we are a nonpartisan entity, really kind of trying to focus on accountability and transparency. But at the outset, really the impetus was how do we as Democrats basically work with all of this corporate money in politics. And that was what we were feeling that that the last election, that election four years ago, there was so much corporate money that influenced that election. Brian had the good idea of initially coming up with a site where people could simply purchase products from companies. It was an actual purchasing site where we would do an Amazon affiliate and people could purchase products from companies that did not support Republicans. And the idea behind this initially was, we as Democrats need to be able to do something so that the presence of corporate money in politics is not so detrimental to our values and our positions politically. So how are we going to work with that? Brian and I are both attorneys. We are very aware that Citizens United, the decision that 
gives corporations and unions protected First Amendment speech is not going anywhere anytime soon. So we need to figure out ways as a society um, and as a democracy to protect the integrity of the system with that corporate money in our democracy. So how are we going to protect the integrity of the system knowing that that money is not going anywhere soon on its own? Democracy thrives where there is light and accountability and transparency. And so one aspect of the founding of Goods Unite Us was let's just make sure that consumers, as they're purchasing things, are aware of how their consumer dollars are affecting elections. Because that is just, there's been kind of a darkness there. People look at at political spending in certain ways, but oftentimes don't think about it when they're at the store buying toilet paper or paper towels or shampoo. We soon realized that people didn't want a purchasing site. They just wanted the information. And that was also much easier to to create a company around. So we very quickly pivoted and worked with a local Madison company to create an app and a website where we basically just revealed corporate political contribution data on a whole list of brands and companies. We knew some other companies that were kind of doing similar things, uh, but no one was doing it well. No one had a really deep bench of, of, of data. And so that's that's really how we we began with Unite Us and focusing then shifting kind of to a more nonpartisan transparency, integrity, accountability type of company. And right now we have we have users pretty much 50-50, I would say, Republican and Democrats who use our app um, and our website. When you say you measure which party companies are supporting, are you talking about donations through corporate PACs? Are you talking about direct corporate donations? Are you talking about employees and how they donate? How are you measuring these things? We've worked on defining that definition as the company has evolved. The data that we provide our our users includes both money from the corporate treasury going into PACs and then money from senior employees. And we define that um, pretty narrowly to include generally the C-suite and high-level VPs. And then we have a threshold um, amount of money so that, you know, an officer that is simply donating $200, that's not going to trigger any results on our end. So we include both corporate treasury funds and um, going into PACs and individual contributions to corporate PACs and directly to candidates. And our research team then looks at FEC data on each company and hand curates it and comes up with a, a kind of a snapshot, basically. We give our users a snapshot of what percentage is going to Democrats versus what percentage is going to Republicans. And then we also break that down is how much of that is corporate money and how much of that is senior employees. Because that was something that early on I really felt is going to matter to some of our users. Ideologically, we're going to have some people that don't have a problem with senior executives giving their own money directly to candidates. But they do have a problem with the corporate treasury funds or kind of more aggregated money going into partisan corporate PACs. So we wanted to make sure that that was broken out in case that mattered to people. You've mentioned that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, are you only doing federal donations? Do you also track money into the partisan organizations on the state level? We're only at the federal level at this point. Okay. So there could be uh, huge amounts of information about corporate partisanship that's yet to be delved into. 
Oh, of course. We obviously can't track the dark money. Um, it's something that we've tried to figure out ways to even flag. And it's the product of not having good campaign finance laws at the federal level. There's a lot of dark money that is affecting these elections that simply is not traceable at this point. What about somebody who's you know, become a billionaire off their company, but makes personal contributions out of their own treasury? Right. We've seen that. That is kind of a, a hard one for us to include in our data unless they are continuing to hold a position at the company. So if they've sold the company or if they're no longer management of the company and they're just going off of their personal wealth, it's not something that's tracked in our data. If you now have users that are half Democrat and half Republicans, does that sort of just wash out the use of what you're doing and how... Is that then helpful in the world? So I believe that the transparency itself is beneficial to our democracy. And what I mean by that is a big reason we're doing this is so that individuals can align their spending with their vote so that their spending doesn't go and then undermine their vote at the polls. And I believe that that could be everybody's right, regardless of their whether they're Republican or a Democrat. I do suspect it is going to, in, in the long run, it's going to help a lot of Democrats and Democratic companies, but it's going to have an effect both ways. Uh, however, I think as a matter of principle, it is something that everyone should be able to do, which is have the information they need to keep their consumer dollars from undermining their one or two votes a year that they do at the voting booth. Could you give me an example or two of highly partisan companies that consumers would typically shop at? Yeah, there's a lot of companies that spend a lot of money. We'll look at like telecommunication companies, AT&T, for instance, spends a lot of money. And part of that is lobbying efforts and the nature of the sector that those companies are in. We don't think about that when we go and get our cell phone plan generally. But what our app allows you to do is go in and check. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of options for progressives in communications companies. So is AT&T mostly a Republican company? AT&T is mostly a Republican company. And I'm going to just pull them up on my, my app right here. 63. 63%. 63%. Um, Republican. Our app also gives you a level of contribution, which I think is really important because if a company is you know, 75% red, but they are a minimal contributor, it's not going to have a huge effect on the outcome of any election or, or undermine your vote that much. But AT&T is a very high contribution level. And uh, they're 63% Republican. So they are actually one of the companies that has made a pledge to cease political donations, at least to certain GOP legislators for the next six months in light of the January 6th event. And so we really see they're a great example of a very politically active private company that has a lot of sway. And so when you are supporting AT&T just with your AT&T cell phone plan, you are funneling money into a company that has a very strong voice in politics. They're a good example of a company in our database that has a a large effect. Now, another company that kind of surprises people is is New Balance Shoes, is Republican. And a lot of people, a lot of progressives wear New Balance Shoes, you know, and maybe maybe they don't 
care. They're they're not a, I think that they're more of a, a high level, not a very high level contributor, but it's one that surprises people. So there's a lot of companies in our app that that you would not think are conservative and donate to Republicans that actually do. And the reverse is also true. So if somebody is curious in this, where do they go to get this information? So we have an app and a website and the app is very easy to use. We download it. It's, it's available on iPhones and all other platforms. Android. Android. I'm sorry. Yep, exactly. Is the app called goods? What is it called? Oh, Yep, it's well. It's called Goods Unite Us. It's Good Unite Google. Us. Yeah. Good search. And then um, the actual icon just says Goods, but um, it's Goods Unite Us. And the user experience is very nice on the app. Our app developers did a really nice job. You can search by brand alphabetically. There's also a search function, so you can just type in a name of a, a company. And one thing that's really nice about our app and our data is that. We also break it down so it's not just the parent company. You can search by certain brands. Then it tells you who the parent company is as well. So a lot of companies, you know, clothing companies um, are owned by Urban Outfitters brand, uh, parent company. So we will give you scores for all of the subsidiaries and all the smaller companies as well and brands. And you can also search the app by politicians, which is a, a function that we added just a couple of years ago. And it allows you, and it's particularly relevant these days, it allows you to search politicians and see some of their largest corporate contributors. So you can search by different politicians. And when you're in a brand, you can also then go to politicians and see what politicians that that company is supporting. So we're in a world right now where the media is so polarized. Should we be moving into a world where all of us are shopping in two different silos? Is this a good direction? That's an issue that we've gotten questions related to this since the beginning on whether or not we are simply making the world more polarized. My position on this is is no. There might be a short-term effect of increasing polarization um, in our shopping and, and things like this, but ultimately, a lot of the strain on our society and a lot of the polarization and a lot of the failure to understand each other, I think, comes from not being heard, a feeling of not being heard. And I ultimately think that a lot of that comes from the disintegration of our vote. We see a lot of things going on right now throughout this country with gerrymandering, with voter ID laws, disenfranchisement, things that are really diluting an individual's vote and making us wonder if even our vote matters and whether or not we're being heard. And I think that really is what fuels the polarization and the need for more extreme pulling apart and to make our voice even louder. I think when we start really feeling heard and understanding that we have some sway and some power, even in our purchases, I think that ultimately that will have a more unifying effect. Not to say that we will be shopping at Republican companies, but that ultimately we can come together a little bit more because at least we know that uh, our vote is not being undermined by these forces that seem much larger than ourselves. So our hope is that the increase in transparency and accountability around corporate money and politics can actually be a, a unifying and, and stabilizing factor in the democracy as a whole, um, I think it'll take some time. If I were you, I would make maybe a different argument. That didn't persuade me too much, which might be something like, 
this might change corporate behavior. If you are in by being partisan in your donations and you're a broad consumer company like an AT&T, then you might want to stop pushing one party over the other so much, right? Without a doubt. I, I think we have kind of two two prongs to our goals at Goods Unite Us. You know, one is the in, protecting that individual's voice and that individual's vote and allowing that individual to feel empowered, which is kind of what I was speaking to. The other real big goal of, of Goods Unite Us is to affect corporate behavior, to incentivize corporations to get out of politics. So while an individual's purchasing behavior might become more, more polarized in a way, the actual corporate speech that we're hearing might be reduced. And we've already seen some really nice results in that area. We've seen companies respond to us um, surprised at their score because they didn't realize that a senior employee had made such a large donation. We've seen companies say, we're changing our behavior, change our score. And of course, we say we can't change your score, but we will continue to add new contribution data and your score will continue to evolve. So we've been very pleased at that. And I think right now, especially what we're seeing, we're seeing with this these recent events in in response to the, the U.S. Capitol riots, we're seeing corporations really step back and say, whoa, 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 take a little bit more responsibility for their involvement. And that's good. I mean, I can imagine like a small progressive company wanting to have a really good progressive score or vice versa, but it seems like for a big company that that's spread across both Democrats and Republicans. I wouldn't want to use them. I'm curious how you feel the level of impact has been at this point. Like, what's your sense of how many people are using what you have and making decisions to change their consumer behavior? We have about, I want to say about 100,000 monthly active users generally. We're having a, um, a fair amount of just organic growth right now in the company. So we have users. We have a, a very active, I feel like active, probably kind of like your podcast, a really active base of people who are very engaged with the company and the app and use it a lot. Um, we're hoping to get the word out through interviews like this so that more people start using the app, more people start making these decisions, um, making more conscious consumer decisions. That is really how we're going to achieve some of our goals, like you mentioned, with affecting corporate behavior. Corporations aren't going to listen until enough people are making these decisions that it affects their bottom line. And we're starting to see a little of that, but we would like to see a lot more. How can you afford to do this? What's your source of funding? So we have investors that from the outset of the company have been investing money into our technology and keeping the company going. We have small sources of revenue that we we have developed through the company. And, and more recently, you know, Goods Unite Us is able to license data. And that is another revenue source that we have right now. Who do you license to? So we license in particular to a subsidiary of Goods Unite Us, which is the Blue ETFs company, which Jason will probably talk a little bit more about. But Goods Unite Us recently created a subsidiary of blue ETFs, which to expand our and allow our data to be used in, in the investment world. Got it. So yeah, Jason sounds like a good time to turn to you. Can you talk about DEMZ and what that is and also these blue T ETFs? What, what's your relationship with Goods Unite Us and what are you up to? 
Thanks so much for the transition. Yes, so I would have answered that question specifically, Abigail, reflection asset management. We're a very large customer of blue ETFs and by extension, then Goods Unite Us. We, we look at them as an unbiased source of data and have specifically chosen to purchase from them those list of companies that have given 75% or more of their total political contributions. So that includes, as Abigail described, both corporate giving from Treasury and also senior executive giving. We think it's an incredibly insightful data point to use in investment management because there's tremendous correlation, as I said before, when I gave my introduction, between companies that think and act and support progressive causes and those that manage their corporations with thoughtful and progressive policies. You need look no further than the performance of the product that we have launched, and nor the back test and the independent index that's calculated by S&P. I mean, these are companies that are day in and day out, constantly holding themselves accountable, being thoughtful around the environment, creating quality products. And the newest sort of corollary point that we're seeing is that they're being very thoughtful and very guarded around their consumers' data and consumer privacy and taking that information seriously. So like Apple, for example. And when you had asked Abigail some companies that were you know, big givers one way or the other that people use on a daily basis, Apple's the first one that pops into mind. I mean, they're 92% to democratic causes. Now, when I say 92%, that sounds like a big number. And I think it's important to take a stop, just a breath here. And understand that we kind of glanced over it a little bit when Abigail said there were some other firms that were kind of out there doing the same thing around federal election commission data. And not to disagree with her, but no one is doing it like goods. And that's the reason that we pay them that fee to support and to, and to have access to that data. Their methodology is above a reproach, right? They're looking at actual dollars spent from a publicly verifiable website, and they're not creating any sort of mechanics or you know, coefficients or multipliers, there, there's no games, there's no magic. It is purely the dollars. Dems over total equals what? Republicans over total equals what? And they put that information out there. So many other of the forms and for, forums rather that are putting this kind of information out there are doing it with a slant. They're doing it to convince or to create some sort of narrative where goods is hands off. They're just giving you access to the data. You use it however you want. You made another point, Nathaniel, that I thought was worth mentioning around corporate giving and whether it would influence people from a purchasing perspective. Because there, there's a bit of a, a disconnect between I buy a product from someone. So I buy a product from Airbnb, right? I stay somewhere or I buy a product from Adobe or Nike. There's a transaction and that goes into the treasury's revenue. They pay their expenses and whatever's left over is profit and they can do with that what they want. And they choose, some of them choose to give it to political candidates. When you're buying a company's stock, it's a different engagement because you're buying a public company, you're buying it on an exchange, so you're not actually giving money to the company, you're buying a share from someone else. And while that may feel like it's a step removed from that consumer transaction where it's your dollars actually flowing into the company, I would point out that while most companies are measured on profitability, virtually every single member of the C-suite in an S&P 500 company have some component of their discretionary bonus on an annual basis, which is by far the largest component of their take-home compensation that's tied to stock price, right? So you probably, in my estimation, on a percentage basis, get the attention of more CEOs if you get more people to mess with their stock price than you do to even boycott them on their products. So I wanted to make that point. And then secondly, as it related to, you know, those corporations, and it, and it 
is it's intuitive if you sort of stop and think about it. Companies that sell broadly, right? If you sell consumer products, right? Coke, Pepsi, tennis shoes, whatever it is that you're selling, those companies tend to be right around the middle, 60, 40, 55, 45, and they're giving it flip-flops depending upon whether you're talking about a midterm cycle or a presidential election year. And one of the things back to the quality of the methodology that goods brings is that it's an average over three election cycles. So there's no ability for companies to manipulate you know, how they're perceived. It's just, this is what it looks like. So it always includes at least one presidential election, which is where most of the money spent. And then back to your point on the state level, each state has their own rules and depending upon who's in charge of the election, you know, the secretary of state or so on and so forth. Um, the federal rules are, are clear. They're required. There's quarterly, what I'll call press releases or releases of information. So you you don't have the total picture, as you both alluded to. But if you go back and look, if you do the postmortem after virtually every election, the dollar spent on the federal side just wildly eclipsed what's spent at the state level. And the only other point that I wanted to make as it related to that was you had talked about things that were sort of surprising. And the example that I always use when I'm talking to people is that no one is shocked when I say that Fox News, right, and its parent company are 70% Republican. But most people are floored when I tell them that CNN and their parent company, Time Warner, is just behind them at right around 63%. So you have these two diametrically opposed organizations whose audiences couldn't be more different, who have their own I don't want to say versions of what happens on a daily basis, but at the end of the day, when the dust settles, they're both funding Republican causes at right about the same level, regardless of which sort of spin or vantage point they're putting on their news. That always is interesting to me, and I think it, it surprises most people. And makes it hard if you think about the impact on society of a company as broader than just their corporate giving to candidates and partisan entities because they do have very different impact. I guess if you're thinking about consuming what they do, that broader measure might be valuable. I want to ask you, though, about the beginning of your recent <laughs> couple paragraphs. You talked about some of the advantages that pertain to companies that govern in a more progressive fashion. I'm wondering what the theory there is and how well it really works in practice about how corporate performance is related to the percentage that they give to Democrats. Can you truly say that these companies perform better? It's incredibly difficult with any academic integrity to call something causal, right? You know, this and then therefore. But there's a lot of opportunity to look at things from a correlation perspective. So I'll outline for you how I think about the world. And, that, and that's true of both the progressive element and what we're doing at Dems. But it's also true of all of the other strategies I've always managed over my career. Um, it's that I believe that there's a fundamental breakdown in how generally accepted accounting principles truly translate into what I'll call public good or even corporate performance. And let me give you an example. So if you think about, and I'm sure that they teach this at CEO school, probably on the first day, if not, definitely by lunch the second day, that when you walk by a microphone and any journalist anywhere asks you a question, regardless of what that question is, you have to work into the sentence, our people or our employees are our greatest asset. There are various versions of it. You know, our greatest asset walks out the door every night and, and those kinds of grandiose CEO type conversations. But the reality of it is when it comes time to report on corporate earnings and corporate performance, 
where are the most important assets, according to the CEO, actually quantified in generally accepted accounting principles? It's not as an asset on the balance sheet. They're carried as the single largest expense on the income statement. They're carried in salaries in general and administrative expenses. That is almost always the first thing that gets cut when times are tough, right? So it makes no regard for institutional memory and turnover. It has no regard for you know the culture of an organization. And you can be the place people want to shop, or you can be the place people have to shop. And there is a distinction, and that distinction translates directly to the margin that you're able to charge on your product, right? I mean, if you think about things like fair trade and organic or farm to table, things that from a pure economics perspective, like if I'm wearing my you know Warren Buffett hat and I'm channeling my inner Benjamin Graham, if a company is using organic, right, they're not using pesticides. What does that mean? It means their marginal cost of production is lower because there's fewer inputs. It also usually means they're probably got a supply chain that's smaller and more direct which means they have fewer transportation dollars in their system. So it costs them less to make, they have less spoilage, and they can get it to you, and you're willing to pay more for it. So therefore, their margin is higher. I mean, I know that's sort of a nerd way of looking at this, but companies that are really thoughtful on human capital and look at their people as inputs into production as opposed to liabilities, and then companies that are also, the other great thing we always talk about, and I do this with my students, is there are three things as a CEO that you have to think about managing every single day right? One is operational risk. The second is litigational risk. And then the fourth is reputational risk. And you can put that in perspective of the largest corporate scandals, bankruptcies, whatever you want to call it. And it was a failure of one of those three things almost every time, right? And it's often not the operational fall down. So if you look at something operational, like even people love to use as an example, the BP, you know, the Deepwater Horizon tragedy, if you look at the order of magnitude of those costs and expenses to the company, operationally, it was about $5 billion, cleanup, et cetera. Litigationally, it was closer to $15 billion between fines and penalties and so on and so forth. Reputationally, it cost them $60 billion in market capitalization for managing that thing so poorly. And then for being so tone deaf after the fact when their CEO was questioned, he's like, I just want to basically get back to my life and go back to sailing. I'm tired of this. So if you're managing a public company, right, and this is a, I also like to use with my students, the Winston Churchill quote, you know, that the lie gets all halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed and puts its pants on. I mean, in the instant connectivity of today's world and Instagram and all the other things, you have a bad customer experience with the wrong person and a hundred million people know about it. So thinking about managing those things and how your reputation translates into either margin or brand, there's a halo effect. Like there's a reason companies are spending money to put out, you know, corporate social responsibility reports and why they're calling Abigail and saying, hey, we need we need a better score here. We need to make some changes. Um, because you know what once was a, a press release at 5 p.m. on Friday, no one cared about, now is tweeted and retweeted and covered till they're blue in the face. So it really is a it's a, a reputational management game in my opinion now. And those companies that are thoughtful and progressive are doing better. Um, and that goes back to all the way to my, tr- my U.S. Trust Merrill Lynch days. I mean, we've got an audited track record of being in the top 10% of performance in our peer group by simply buying companies who, now not agnostic of their product, right? I mean, there are companies that are extremely thoughtfully managed, but they just are in the wrong business, right? I mean, if you're making buggy whips or, you know, mainframes, it doesn't matter how progressive your company politics are, no one wants your product. But for companies who are competing head to head, 
there's oftentimes, you know, in, in a tie, the company that spends more on democratic causes more often than not outperforms over the long run. If I have a choice of different index funds or whatever to choose, and I want to invest some money, why Demsy, Dems, will make the case for it. So the idea there, Nathaniel, is that you don't have to choose, right? That you don't have to say, I have to sacrifice something, and whether that's performance or diversification, um, we created this product to be an absolute substitute for your S&P 500 exposure, with the distinct difference being you should expect the same return for the same level of risk, but instead of owning all 500 companies, you're only going to own somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 over a period of time. You're still going to have good sector diversification. You're still going to have really thoughtful risk parameters around individual position size, over allocation to certain sectors. But what you will not have are companies in there through your very ownership of that strategy, right? Because as an owner, you have two things. One, one, you control a vote. And that's the other thing I think that we can really talk about back to Abigail's point. People have in their mind for some reason disassociated themselves from their investments and what it really means. Like they'll spend more time thinking about which pair of shoes they're going to buy or which toilet paper they're going to buy, but not which stock of the company that makes those things that they're going to buy. Because we have, I guess, Wall Street in general, should I guess take the blame for this, have disassociated the idea of owning a share of stock means just that. You are an owner, right? You may not own 25 or 50% of it, like a Warren Buffett or a great big institutional investor, but you do own it. So you are accountable. You are implicitly and explicitly saying, I own this company. I therefore am okay with what they make, how they make it, and how they sell it. And I don't think people take that seriously enough or have made that connection yet. So the pitch for Dems is plain and simple. There are, you know, give or take. I think the Goods United's piece, they just wrote a piece about this, but it's, it's roughly 40% of the value of the S&P on a market capitalization basis over donates or using that sort of threshold of you know more than 50% or more than 75% to Republican causes. You're supporting their stock price and you're an owner. If you were sitting in the boardroom, because as an owner, technically, intellectually, you could be, would you vote to keep that management policy and practice in place? And if the answer is no, either buy enough of the company like a Warren Buffett or someone else and make the change, like an activist investor might, or walk away. So we're, we're providing that risk and that return that's just like the S&P without having to own those companies where you'd be ashamed to sit in the boardroom and make those decisions. Does anyone use the same data to do a Republican version? The same data? No, not that I'm aware of. There are a couple of other products that are out there um, around you know, looking at the world from a Republican perspective. Uh, my particular favorite, and I say this on purpose, I would never normally you know, violate the oath of thou shalt not talk about your competitors. Um, but ACVF, American Conservative Values Fund, is a strategy launched right around the time we were launched. And uh, it purports to be this bastion of conservatism in a, in a world gone liberally mad. And what's interesting to me, and I've, I've reached out to them and tried to point this out to them, if you look at their largest holdings, and there's better than 50 or 60% overlap with our top 10. And just recently, meaning in fact yesterday, they put out a press release that said, you know, given the light, you know, of what's going on at the Capitol building and all of these other companies trying to stagnate free speech, we've never bought Facebook, we've never bought, and they list a couple of other firms, but we're stopping all new purchases of companies like Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. And that's an important distinction to note. We're stopping new purchases. Now, they're not selling, they're not divesting, right? And I would bet dollars to donuts inside that organization, the call went something like this. 
well, we can't sell those companies because we need it to perform and we're trying to raise assets and make money. So if you if you want to buy a Republican in name only strategy, that would be a great one to take a look at because most of their holdings are giving north of 50% and in some instances way more than 75% to Democratic causes. And I believe that the corollary between that is because they know that their strategy needs to make money. So they vote blue because blue is the new green. Like they have to own those companies or they won't perform. That makes some sense. What What is the blue ETF that's been mentioned? So blue ETFs is just the name of the company that Goods Unite has set up. So Goods is an independent, completely nonpartisan organization. I wanted to buy or call it lease from them the data on, the, on the, that side. And the board felt like they needed to create another entity to maintain their complete nonpartisanship. So I'm sure if someone came along and wanted to buy the red data from them, they could do that and they would create red ETFs. But it's, it's a holding company that to keep blue isolated from the politics of those of us that are trying to use that partisanship to build product. Jason, I, I looked up Dems, DMZ, and I noticed that it's not doesn't seem to be traded that much. It doesn't seem to have that many assets under management. How can I understand that? And does that affect whether it makes a good investment or not? So that's a, that's a great question, Nathaniel. And, and let me be clear, this is a widely held misperception in the financial services community. Right? An exchange-traded fund is a particular vehicle, and it's organized under Securities and Exchange Commission rules and regulations. And what it does is it serves as a holding company that owns underlying shares in the companies selected and held. So in our instance, members of the S&P 500. So the fact that we're a relatively new fund, we launched on election day, and that we're trading, you know, modest share amounts on an average daily basis. Again, we would certainly love for there to be more. Uh, and as you pointed out, we're roughly about two and a half million dollars in assets under management since our launch. Now, neither of those two numbers has any bearing on the liquidity or the security involved in DEMS as an investment strategy. Right. The fact that there isn't a lot of shares trading is simply a result of the fact that there's been a ban on political advertising. And we've unfortunately been captured in that net because our investment strategy leverages political information, meaning those contributions to democratic causes and candidates, as a central thesis. So it's hard to talk about the product without talking about the word Democrat, Democrat Party or blue, all of which are being shut down by Facebook and Google. To your specific question, there are primers out there in the marketplace. JP Morgan has a particularly good one. If you just go to Google and search JP Morgan primer on ETFs, it'll make clear to you that the liquidity of an ETF is driven by what it holds in the underlying. So for us, it's the S&P 500, extremely liquid names, lots and lots of volume. So for an investor who wanted to buy DEMS, the fact that we're not trading a lot of shares in a given day is not relevant at all. Most new ETFs don't trade a lot of shares until they gain market momentum and sort of wider adoption. So for us, we're, of course, always wanting to be larger, always wanting to do better, wanting to continue to evangelize about the cause. But to investors and financial advisors out there, I would say there is simply no additional risk by the fact that this has traded smaller or is relatively small. It's just new. And there's no, there's no perceived or increased risk in it whatsoever. Listening to you and Abigail, I wondered for my audience whether they would feel like for what you're doing, whether you were kind of collectively not that committed to the progressive cause and whether that mattered. 
That's an excellent question. And I think that's a very fair question. And Goods Unitas was started and has continued to be run as a nonpartisan organization. They really want to truly bring light to where political spending is happening. Um, I can say with absolute certainty, as, as Abigail introduced herself, that she's not only a card-carrying Democrat, right? She is the, the deputy attorney general in the state of Wisconsin, focusing on you know, all sorts of legal issues, but specifically also environmental legal issues. Her husband, Brian, who's another founding board member of Goods Unitas, uh, is, is very active in Perkins Coie, which is a, a law firm. It's actually the law firm that represents the Democratic Party and several high-profile Democrats as it relates to the Al, Al Gore election, um, Hillary Clinton, and the issues around the server. Like Perkins Coie is basically the DNC's law firm, and Brian is a partner there in the Madison office. I, myself, do not manage a Republican strategy. While I will create custom portfolios for clients who are in my account book, who have a vision that they want to see expressed, again, with the caveat, I will do no harm, I have been approached, as you might imagine, to build product in all sorts of places. And I only lend my name and my expertise to things that I believe in. So I do think that this is uh, a good investment strategy. I also think it's a wonderful cause to be a supporter of. Is there a question, Abigail, or Jason, that I should have asked that I didn't? Not that I can think of. Um, I think Jason, just a point I'll, uh, I'll make is that I think Jason did a really nice job talking about why the the Dems product is such a unique and innovative product. And I would just say that from a, from a goods perspective and the goals that we're founded from, what I love about Dems and this idea um, that they're using our data for this is that by investing using these objective benchmarks, which is our verifiable FEC political contribution data, and, and making an index out of that data, you encompass so many of the social issues that Democrats care about. So when Democrats want to go and, and they want to extend their values into their investing, they can do that in ESG funds. And there are some wonderful ESG funds. But from my perspective and at Goods Unite Us, it's way more effective to be looking at political contributions because nothing affects, really, really affects these social issues as much as our laws. And so if you care about the environment, instead of simply investing in a company with a good ESG score because they recycle and they have good internal policies on the environment, how about you invest in a company that is donating to candidates, helping candidates get elected that are going to pass laws protecting the environment? So from my perspective, this is a really unique opportunity for Democrats to not only align their investing with their politics, but advance these issues that they care about. So I just add that. Jason? Yeah, I think that's right, Abigail. And and again, thank you for that, because we, we have tried really hard to build a credible product that for, you know, and again, it's worth mentioning, because you said your, your type of audience would be the organizations that might be interested in hearing this story. Um, we wanted to offer that S&P exposure and return and risk and similar price, right? Very reasonably priced, almost 50% less than some of our other across the aisle counterparts uh, in terms of fees available to the general public. And also at an initial launch price of $20, there was a true democratization focused of making this available to the person who just virtually graduated from college this last year because of COVID at either you know the December or this previous May. 
and just started their first job and is saving in their 401k and really has a passion, but not a ton of assets. We wanted to give them exposure to professionally managed product that you would see at any Wall Street firm that was as good as it could be, but that wasn't prohibitively expensive or having incredibly large minimums from a requirement. So for $20 and now 23 since the stock's done so well, um, anyone can participate. But in terms of questions that I would have asked, um, no, Nathaniel, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and doing a deep dive on, on what can be a relative. It's an interesting conversation when you keep it 50,000 feet at politics. I believe it becomes a very interesting conversation when you shine that light on the 10,000 and below concept of what's really happening and how does the sausage get made and who's giving money where and, and, and how does it work. So I, I really I thank you for that. Um, the only thing that I would leave with in terms of the question is that where Go when we covered it with the with the goods unite us both the website and the app. But if, at Reflection Asset Management and or Dems Fund, there's lots of information there. So if you're if you're shopping and you're interested, love to hear from you and love to tell you our story. And if not, if you just want to see the information and find out who's doing what, check it out, right? Because an, an informed consumer is a good consumer either way. So we we appreciate the opportunity to tell the story. And I appreciate your time today. That was Jason Britton and Abigail Wiest of Goods Unite Us and the Democratic Values ETF called Dems, Demzy. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.